Hello, listeners, to part two of my interview with author, journalist, and war correspondent Kevin Toulis. Kevin has not only been to many wakes and has seen much death and sorrow in his career, but he's also experienced himself the sad loss of his brother. Here now is Kevin talking about this time in his life. It was interesting and moved out of sight of the living, and it was in an act of kindness, but also of denial. Now, that was your 20-year-old self feeling that at the time about your brother? I didn't at the time as a 20-year-old. I saw it more as an act of kindness. Okay. Um, but obviously, you know, with your own medical experience, given the kind of limited resources that were there, you know, it was a sort of act of kindness in the sense in that it was slightly more private. It was a greater space. Mm-hmm. Um, but he'd also inevitably, as you would know from your own medical experience, been sort of marked out as someone who's very likely to die. Yeah. You know, that, okay. that, that you... The disadvantage, in a sense, that civilians have vis-a-vis the medical profession and those who've encountered death more is, obviously, as a medical profession, you just, you know, you understand, you've seen it before. Mm-hmm. You sort of see the pathway. Mm-hmm. My, my own father, which is, this is quite difficult. Afterwards, we were talking about Bernard's death, and he said, I knew Bernard was going to die. Mm. And at the time, as a 19-year-old, uh, I was still really, despite obviously having grown up in the Irish wake tradition, I hadn't had a brother who died before. It hadn't been so intimate. And I, I'd sort of thought that there was going to be like a miracle, you know, that they, the drugs would sort of rally. Mm-hmm. In, in the movies, people don't really die. Yeah. You know, they, the bullet, you know, dodges them and the engine coughs into life and, and that white man runs up the, or mm-hmm. the man in the white coat runs up the ward with the kind of milit- miracle drug and zoom, and then you get saved. Yeah. But actually, in real life, you don't get saved. No. Some people die. So, of course, that was a huge, you know, shattering. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was, even though you had grown up um, being familiar and comfortable around death and around the bereaved, this was sort of your first personal death. Yeah, and I suppose, particularly being 19, mm-hmm. um, I was just, uh, I was sort of shattered that in the small cubicle where he was when I saw my dead brother, I then, you know, you, you have that sort of, I'd call it like, sort of like terror, that realizing that I was no longer a son, that I was just a mortal person. Because if this person could die, okay. who had fought so hard to, to survive, had so, been so tenacious mm-hmm. in wanting to live, mm-hmm. um, who just died, as, as we all die, yeah. that you realize then is that, Hey, it's I'm mortal too. Okay. So that did that did affect me, Anne. In that normally you'd be a bit older, you know, mm-hmm. before in a sense you start encountering kind of routine mortalities. Okay. And because I was also my my brother's donor, I'd literally given my bone marrow into his mm. body to try and save him from leukemia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and had during the course of the treatment had gone down to the special English hospital near London and had had the operation and then had ended up in recovery in the cancer ward. Mm. Quite peculiar, full of bald, very tanned, very athletic, sort of quite beautiful young men mm-hmm. who were all dying of cancer, mm-hmm. some various kind of cancer. So it had been quite a strange, convoluted 
journey over two years. And I just couldn't believe that this journey could end in such an ordinary, humble, matter-of-fact, but utterly shattering mortality. Mm, mm. I got the sense, and rightly so, yes. You fall into grief and it is a shattering, a wounding, as you say in the book, that you were, that experience left you very angry. You know, I'm not angry now, but at the time, and obviously we still see this sort of narrative, which, you know, the narrative of the cancer survivor. Um, I fought to get on those tests and, and as if there's some sort of capitalistic battle it's more prevalent, I think, in North America mm-hmm. than in the UK because obviously yeah. the way that the medical profession is organised. But that you're—it's like you're a sort of candidate in the race. And then often we—I mean, I've used it myself in this interview. But you know, we talk about battle and the war, and I'm the survivor. But we're not survivors. Mm-hmm. You know, for every person who you see as this you know, so-called kind of hero, there are 99 people who've fought pretty tenaciously for life. Mm-hmm. One of my other brothers is a doctor, and he was a consultant hematologist all of his life, all of his working life. Mm-hmm. And so he um, basically, his speciality was leukemia, mm-hmm. and he also did sort of like HIV, uh, people with AIDS, when this was before there were the kind of retrovirals. And after, soon after Bernard's death, I said to him, um, you know, being a fighter, that's one of these phrases, you know, oh, they're a great fighter. Particularly, we hear that a lot with kind of stars. You know, mm-hmm. they're a great fighter, says their agent. They'll yeah. be able to cure this and so yeah. on. Yeah. But anyway, I said to my brother, brother, I said, um, well, does it make any difference? And he, he said it in such a sort of matter of fact. He said, he said oh, no, 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 they all die. And yeah. he, he didn't like say it like a big thing. Yeah. He sort of said it like, you know, pass me the, you know, magazine. Okay. I mean, it's so sort of matter of fact. Yeah. And it was like so shocking. But of course, so perhaps instead of teaching them how to be survivors and fighters, it's more of a helping them to accept, would you say? Yeah, I mean, you can get this sort of, uh, you know, people say, oh, I get the cancer in my, in my mind and I kind of write, wipe it out. But mm. it's just a sort of biological genetic mutation, you know, um, cellular mitosis. It doesn't care. It doesn't have... A will, it's we call it malignant, mm-hmm. but it's it's really genetic. Mm-hmm. It's basically the replication of sort of cells. It's sort of stop, you know, stop bacteria replicating themselves, or mm-hmm. you know, you can no more change that. Obviously, through medicine, we can attempt to interfere with this mechanism, mm-hmm. but it's not. We one of the things that we do need to do is free ourselves from, and this is quite difficult from the sense of some personal responsibility that, you know, you got cancer because you were a bad person, Mm -hmm. you did this. Mm -hmm. This is just genetic mutation, you know. Solar flares come out of the sun all the time. Mm -hmm. It's not your responsibility. Um, Human DNA mutates all the time. Mm -hmm. And obviously it can result in these sort of cancerous growths. By putting it into this sort of war metaphor, battlefield metaphor, fighter etc then we're sort of fooling ourselves we're misappropriating the mm-hmm. wrong kind of language yeah it's not the fault of anyone that they've got cancer and they're dying mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. you know it wasn't my brother's 20 my 26 year old brother's fault that he had chronic myeloid leukemia i mean he may have there might have been some cause he might have been in 
he worked, possibly worked in an environment that he didn't know about mm. that maybe have increased his chances. Mm-hmm. There's obviously things that you can do. You know, yeah. you can stop smoking. Yeah. Like, you know, should prepare. It's not yeah. the idea that somehow you're engaged in a personal battle with mm-hmm. cancer. Mm-hmm. The cancer doesn't care who you are. It doesn't. It doesn't have any moral urgency or sense. It is just a blind replicating um, genetic mechanism. You're just mortal. <laughs> Bringing it back down to you are mortal. Yeah. So from that experience, it sounds as if that almost shaped who you were going to be professionally, a war correspondent. And, and a, I got the sense you were searching for something, uh, some kind of shield, I believe, you, you mention in the book. Can you explain you had this shattering, you realized that you were mortal, you had bought into the belief that if you just fought strong enough, uh, you had given, you had supported, yet it still happened. Was that the impetus, the anger, or the denial, or what was it you were searching for after the death of your brother? Well, I think it took a long time and to really understand what I was searching for. Okay. Um, and it was only with much later in life, it's kind of like reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking back, I was very intrigued by Ireland's troubles. I was very intrigued by reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, I like doing it. Um, it made me feel so professionally uh, very competent. I had um, I, I did develop these very acute and dangerous gifts in that I could knock on your door, a complete stranger. I sit down on the sofa and within five minutes ask you straight out about the worst things that ever happened to you. Your son, what was it like in the house when you saw the men outside? When did you realize they'd come to kill you? Mm-hmm. When did you run upstairs and you, you looked out the front window and you saw a man in your driveway in a car dressed in a balaclava and knew mm-hmm. at that moment that they had come for your life, Frankie? Mm-hmm. Well, what happened then? Or And then when, when you heard the gunfire going downstairs and that you'd left your brother feel him downstairs. And what, what do you think then? So these were like incredibly intimate questions to be asking a relative stranger. Mm-hmm. Often I just met these people for a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. I made documentaries in the Middle East about suicide bombing. I met suicide bomber families. I met the victims of suicide bombing. I, I uh, went to famine fields in Africa and saw people die. I places like plague lands. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of crime reporting. I listened uh, to a lot of grief. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some of that, I think, was really a search for like a little piece of armor. As if you could take from these people like a little, a little, like a tile, like a roof tile, and then you could pin it on your own back. Mm-hmm. What's it like to live in the aftermath of grief and mm-hmm. dying Um and kind of irresolvable, they're dead, the person that you loved, you can't make them bring them back to life. How do you go on? Yeah. And so in that sense, it was a sort of like a journey. Um, you know, I was very good at it, dangerously so. Oddly, it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> what I discovered after doing it for a long time, is it doesn't really help you in the same way uh, as you think it might, mm-hmm. um, because you're still mortal yourself. Yeah. And it does obviously shape, you know, being around like as medical, I'm not comparing myself to a medical professional at all, but being around a lot of human sorrow, asking people or seeing people about 
some of the worst things in human nature mm-hmm. obviously has an impact on you and it does make you think differently about um, what you see, what people are saying. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I suppose it makes you sceptical of the stories that we often tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. There's a whole sort of questioning, I'm okay, it's fine, it doesn't matter, put it behind me. Yeah. Um, those things, yeah. So do you think, I love the way you say you were dangerous. Was it because you were comfortable asking these questions or did the responses that you get from the people because you were asking these direct questions that nobody else would ever ask them and they were only too happy to talk about it? In in some ways, I often thought, that even amongst their family, that this was the first time that these people had ever spoken yeah. in such intimate detail. Mm-hmm. That no one, and I don't mean this in some sort of great way, that no one had the courage and honesty to ask them those questions before. Mm-hmm. And then when you ask them one question, they would tell you another question. They would, they would basically, this kind of story would unravel. Yeah. Not all of these easy, they weren't all easy interviews to get. I've often pursued these people for a long time. Mm-hmm talking to people in terrorist organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you do these things, politics, you know, the motivation to join. So all, all of these parts, you know, much of it was within a journalistic context, mm-hmm. but usually there was something else going on. Sort of human yeah. interest. <laughs> my, um, my fix is always used to say, why are you asking so many questions? Because <laughs> I'm <laughs> no curious. No one else asks so many questions. <laughs> but they'd say, no other journalist asks so many questions. But I bet you got some amazing answers through those questions. I did. <laughs> yeah. I did. I All did. right. Let's. Thank you for sharing that. Um, that that was quite the journey. And if readers are interested in more, they can certainly hear it in its entirety in the book. And this brings us to the end of part two. I'm certain by now you're gaining insight into the author's life and how his early Irish background had helped him to feel more comfortable around death and what drew him into his career. Stay tuned for part three, where you'll hear more about Sonny and be introduced to the women and the part that they play in the Irish wake. Bye-bye for now.